The countdown continues. We're at episode number three, the number three top downloaded episode of 2022. Yeah, and I, I thought this was fascinating. This is episode 71, Gender, the American State of Affairs with, drumroll, Jesse Single. Yes. And th- this was a really, really interesting conversation. I had been dying to speak to Jesse Single forever. And then when we finally got to speak to him, I thought, oh, my God, I I want to speak to him more. And I I would like to debate him. I would like to go in (laughs) a lot more there. So we might be calling him back if I have my way. (laughs) We did a little bit. So the audience can kind of hear us engage uh, on some topics where maybe we, we have a different perspective from Jesse. So enjoy number three of the year. You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you today? Uh, Very good. We've got a very exciting guest. Uh, Yes. Yeah. um, I first heard about Jesse Single, I think, I read an article about Ken Zucker. This is way, way, way back. And I was like, wow, this is this is serious journalism coming from America. When I'd been told I was over in Ireland, been told that really there was nothing coming out of America that was was decent or or, or truthful. At the time, that's what I was being told. I was in uh, very much working in Ireland and UK at the time. So that's my first invitation or my first introduction to Jesse. And so you're very welcome, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. So I think most of our readers will probably, or listeners probably are familiar with your work. I think you first came across my radar with the Atlantic piece, um, which was, I think, one of the first times I heard a journalist kind of cover multiple angles on the childhood gender thing. So can you share maybe, how did this issue come across your radar? Because I think you're most well known now for your coverage of childhood transition and the, the meta- medicine around it. So how did this come across your radar in the first place? Yeah, it's sort of a long story. I mean, I think my first introduction to like any of the trans debate was um, Alice Drager's book, Galileo's Middle Finger, um, you know, which just her book is basically about fights between activism and science on the left. And and her view is we need we need good science for good activism. Um, I wrote a, a sort of book review essay about that in 2015 or so. And then the first article that got some attention on this subject was, um, yeah, how, how the fight over transgender kids got a leading sex researcher fired. Um, that's about Ken Zucker. Uh, 2016, his clinic in Toronto was shut down because of accusations of conversion therapy. I I looked into the accusations and they were um, seriously overblown. My article was not an attempt to sort of evaluate the entire uh, span of his clinic's run, but at the time I looked at the allegations they were false. The most serious one was false. The report that led to the clinic being closed was just shot through with major errors. And, um, you know, I published that response and got a pretty uh, noteworthy response, both people complimenting me. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Could I ask? I, I, I read it. It's really good. Um, Thank you. Did, did you know what you were getting into? I know you'd read Alice Drager, so you knew the background. You knew this must be controversial. But did you expect it to be quite as as mad as it as it was at that point no i mean i don't think ever any there have been sort of multiple rounds of this i don't think i've ever fully understood how mad it would be um you know i i think i understood people would be upset uh one of my sources was was a trans woman um i I didn't end up quoting her just because she didn't have familiarity with the specifics but as we were going back and forth in dms she was very upset at the idea that I would quote unquote defend Zucker. I, I I think there was a sense that he was indefensible. And again, it wasn't my job to sort of evaluate the entire run of his clinic, but to evaluate these charges. Uh, and they were false. And and my reporting, in my view, was validated because he received a large settlement um, from his hospital. And, and there was also an apology because they basically libeled him. So that came out. There was a big response. A lot of people mad at me um, about it. But I, I do have a tendency, I think, if people get mad about something, 
I say and I or write. If people get mad at something I write and I can't identify a specific error they're mad about, my tendency will be to want to look more into that subject because I think that's a pretty good sign as a journalist that you should. Um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people think you should read the room, uh, but <laughs> I don't. I don't like reading the room. Or I read the room in the opposite way. And uh, you know, this just led me further down the road of this subject. I I don't remember how, but I came across some detransitioners, and I, as I was at New York Magazine, I started working on a piece about detransitioners with the support of of my editors. Um, you know, I have every reason to believe it would have run there. I ended up leaving because I got a book contract. And then as a freelancer, it was sort of harder to get their editorial attention on that piece. And I took it to the Atlantic, uh, which took it on and, and gave me a lot of support. And uh, yeah, that came out, God, almost uh, four years ago now um, in 2018. And yeah, that was the one. It was a cover story in the Atlantic. And that that really infuriated a lot of people who you know, to this day, I still get some feedback from people who are furious about it, but just doesn't seem like they could have read it given what they think is in there. And then there's other people who have sort of more good faith uh, critiques of, did I put the regret stories too high? Did I, should I emphasize this or that more? But I very much stand by that story. And I, I, I still think it, um, I had a lot of help from my editors and from a excellent fact checker. And I think thanks to them and to the clinicians I talked to, it's still a useful guide for parents trying to navigate this subject. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned, um, your book contract and is that the book that you wrote recently about kind of psychological fads? I think it's called quick fix, the quick fix, why fat yeah. psychology can't cure our social ills. Yep. That okay. is, um, that's that one. Okay, so does that imply then that you have been interested in or kind of following the types of fads that come in and out of the field of psychology for a while before you even looked at gender? And I know you don't talk about gender in your book, so I just want to make that clarification. But like, had you been primed to like have your radar out for weird psychological trends that don't have a lot of research to support them? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there's some maybe... This case is sort of more complicated than some of the ones I cover in my book. But yeah, well before I became in some circles controversial on this, I, I'd, um, you know, left New York Magazine to start writing a book on um, fad psychology and sort of the world of TED Talks more generally. You've got a few fads I've heard you talk about, um, which are really good. And I'm actually quite a fan of self-help books. There's nothing wrong with self-help books. I think they're great. I, I, I'm a psychotherapist and I became uh, uh, a psychotherapist because I had such bad therapy in my 20s. I always think I trailed around therapists and I got nowhere. And then I read a few self-help books and they really changed my life. They really did. They made a huge difference to me. And as a result, I became a therapist, <laughs> ironically enough. But yeah, um, you you kind of, I think you, you make a very good point that they, people who buy self-help books buy a lot of them. And uh, it's this kind of forlorn search that they're always kind of on the next fix. Well, there's another, there is another argument that, you know, people who buy self-help books enjoy them, enjoy the, the experience. They're not necessarily a sad little... Stella walking around saying one of these will make me happy. Yeah, no, and I, yeah. I know people who have benefited from self help books. My my argument in my book is more that um, psychol the the biggest named social psychologists are often repackaging self help with like a thin veneer of science, and that science is very shaky. And it would be much more honest to be like, this is just this is self help. Uh, that would be a better way to approach it. So, no, I, I don't I don't have a gripe with self help uh, per se. For, to cool. Be clear. We're friends, so. <laughs> Can you tell friends us again. a little bit about the book? Because I actually think the premise of the book is really interesting. And I, I have to admit, sadly, I have not read it. But it, it's, it seems to be something I've come across. Like, for example, I know Steve Salerno is somebody I've heard you talk about. And I had come across his work a while back and got really into it. So can you just tell our audience a bit about your book? Yeah, I mean, the, the book's argument is that, um, especially in the 21st century, although a couple examples precede that, psychologists have taken on this outsized role of really telling us how to fix society uh, with ideas ranging from uh, power posing, which is the idea that if you stand with your arms out like Superman, you'll do better in negotiation settings to the implicit association test, which supposedly reveals our unconscious bias to grit, which can supposedly help uh, low income kids do better in school. 
it's just uh, it's just idea after idea after idea that often gains you know TED Talk acclaim and book deals and um, there's it's often the case that five or ten years later after one of these ideas goes viral, it turns out there was almost nothing there to to recommend it. And my argument is basically that part of what's going on here is like America is a pretty politically dysfunctional place and we're beset by these problems we don't really have the ability to solve. So we turn to cute psychological tweaks instead that aren't really up to the task. Yeah, yeah even I'm thinking about the self-esteem movement, which I remember – yeah. being um, a really, really popular thing that was implemented through school programs and all kinds of school counseling curricula. And it ended up being a bit misguided, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I quoted Salerno. And that's one of my early chapters is on that stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, I wrote a book uh, called Fragile. And in one of the chapters, it's about you know mental health and anxiety and stuff. And one of the chapters, I talk about mental health slogans. And I, I kind of think that an awful lot of the studies, in fairness to the studies, the studies say something gentle. And then the the write up of the study says, you know, grit cures all wounds. Yeah. You, you know, and in fairness, the, the researchers have just said, oh, we, we've seen something slightly interesting. And there's a very, very, very small percentage of of change in people. And it, it, you could argue that we 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 kind of we make we make them so we reduce them we reduce all these studies to kind of sound bites and then yeah. the media run with that and suddenly we're running around saying grit is everything well yeah i think that's true i think um it depends on the researcher some researchers are pretty honest about the limitations of their research others pretty enthusiastically take part in the exaggeration the misrepresentation so in the book i try to be charitable and i think a lot of this is sort of bad methods in psychology uh, that aren't really anyone's fault. But uh, yeah, I I, I guess I I agree with you sometimes. I think sometimes it's the PR offices and the publishers, but sometimes uh, researchers themselves are partly to blame. Right. And I'm really interested why you keep on knocking at the door of science because like you, you destroy it regularly saying, this is rubbish, this is rubbish, <laughs> that, that over there is rubbish. Right. Well, what's the line? It's like... Um, democracy is like the best of a lot oh, of yeah. worse alternatives. It's sort of that with science. I mean, I think we, we need science and I think it does, it has uh self-correcting and self-improving mechanisms that other, you know, ways of finding meaning lack. Um, so we need it and we need, we need nudges who will, who will knock at the door and tell people to get their act together, huh. searching for some snazzier analogy here. Uh, but um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I still I, I have way less faith in the scientific establishment than I did five years ago. But I think it's uh, it's worth saving if we can save it. You you wrote a piece recently on your Substack called researchers found puberty blockers and hormones didn't improve trans kids mental health at their clinic. Then they published a study claiming the opposite. So this kind of well, this article is fantastic and we'll link it in mm-hmm. notes. And this really speaks to. Um, that particular type of therapist that is, or sorry, researcher who's willing to exaggerate claims from their papers or misrepresent their research. And I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us a little bit about that piece. And and I also want to say before you get into this, I find that when I read your work, I'm I'm frustrated that you have to follow around other journalists and correct and fact check. And I, I, I don't know if this is normal because as a therapist I've not really been deeply intertwined in the world of journalism up until really I started working around the gender issue because misrepresentations in journalism have have a big part to play here but um, I find myself often like why does Jesse Single have to do this when other (laughs) reporters are touching this topic and doing it poorly I don't know if if, do you do you ever feel like exhausted that you have to keep doing this yeah, I mean, I'm I'm lucky I get to do it and I'm I'm getting paid to do it. I'm grateful for that. It's it's sort of silly that there's so much bad journalism out there that um I can I can keep doing it. I could spend all day doing it if I wanted to, which I don't. Uh so it's not good. I mean, there was another instance of um I've written about science-based medicine, which as the name implies is supposed to be a website dedicated to science-based medicine absolutely butchered this subject. I wrote about that. Foreign policy decided to dig, dip into it with a completely deranged piece that got everything wrong. So 
Um, I do. We can talk about this later if you want. I do think things are improving a little bit. Um, so I, I can't complain that much. But it, yeah, it's bad, and I shouldn't. I shouldn't have to do it. You're right. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about that piece and the research that you were looking at. Yeah, this was um, an article published in uh, what's it called? JAMA Network Open. Um, and it's a group mostly from the University of Washington, Seattle and Seattle Children's Hospital. Article is called Mental Health Outcomes in Transgendered Non-Binary Youth Receiving Gender Affirming Care. And, uh, you know, they, they gave a bunch of kids hormones and they followed them to 12 months out, except they followed most of them to six. Well, the long and the short of it is they, they measured these kids for depression, anxiety and suicidal and self-harm thoughts. And if you look at their own data, there's just nothing there. There's no sign that the kids who went on um, hormones or blockers improved. The group that did not go on blockers or hormones dropped out. Um, there were about 100 kids in the study at the start of it. By the end, by the 12 month span, they only had six kids left in the no treatment group. So almost everyone who dropped out of the study did not go on treatment, which right off the bat, that's um, roughly known as differential rates of attrition. That suggests there's some big difference between the group that stayed in contact with the clinic and the group that fell out of contact. Because, and and we have to speculate because the authors provide so little information. But one obvious uh, explanation would be the kids who dropped out of the study no longer had gender dysphoria and were doing fine. Yeah. So that means your any statistical comparison. The researchers do make a strange statistical comparison, quote unquote, showing that if you run a specific model and average across all four time spans and adjust for X, Y, Z, the kids who go on hormones and blockers do better than the ones who don't. But that's, that's more because the kids who in the no treatment group seem to get a little bit worse over some time spans. But, but if the kids who are doing fine and don't go on treatment drop out of contact with the clinic, that could explain that effect right there. But, but, but it's almost beyond the point, like to even get this deep in the weeds, because it's so clear looking at the data that their claims of um, blockers and hormones improving kids' mental health are just not not found anywhere in their data. And have you have you studied the puberty blockers um, studies from from the Dutch team? I don't think I have as close as you guys uh, have. I've, you, you and others have alerted me to some issues with that research. And, and to me, the bigger problem is just that we have to lean so heavily on that research because they're just they're almost the only game in town. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's why this paper that I critiqued, this paper in theory is like the kind of paper you want people to do. They, they followed a group of kids for 12 months, which is not a long enough follow-up period, but there's funding issues. There's other methodological issues. This is what we want. We want more clinics to produce data. Unfortunately, their, their method was so broken and their, the way they communicated the study was so frankly dishonest that I, I think it reflects incredibly poorly on the journal and on everyone involved in the research. Um, I know that you kind of are, uh, from what I know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you're fundamentally, you're more around, you kind of land where Erica Anderson lands and Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper, insofar as you think some children should transition with the right uh, assessments and evaluations, but they're not necessarily being taken, they're not necessarily happening these days or something along those lines. Yeah, I think if like everyone went through the Dutch process, I wouldn't have that many qualms just because I think whatever whatever the limitations of the research, they really did keep a close eye on those kids and put a premium on, um, you know, mental health care and making sure the feeling stuck around over time. I, I think now in the US, we're in something of a wild west where in some parts of the country, kids get well, in some part of the country, they're still weightless in some parts or not a lot of gender clinics and in the parts of the country I live in and frequent, I think it's often quite easy for kids going through mental health crises to proceed quickly to blockers and hormones, which I think is um, a pretty bad idea in light of how little we have such little data, even on that, you know, to me, near ideal scenario of the way the Dutch do it. Uh, I, I don't see how anyone can argue that's a good idea to just do a big experiment on this on these kids. Mm. Well, I certainly thought that the Dutch protocol was was was, as you said, the near enough to a gold standard. But I, I don't think so anymore. I think I've changed my, my view quite substantially when I really, really started to study the details and 
lots of lots of issues came out that really made me think that we often presume now and I say this and I'm in the middle I'm in Ireland we presume if it's from America there might be something shoddy but if it's from a different country it it has this <laughs> I know that I'm, I'm yeah. can I can argue with that <laughs> but I'm wrong because actually actually no I, I I really don't think I don't I think if if Jesse Single got at the Dutch study you'd be doing uh, the world a favor frankly I mean you know, other people, my, my sense is one of the issues is that, um, and I think the Finns found this, uh, too, it, basically like the kids who did okay were already doing okay beforehand. And, and there's not a much of evidence of like increases in mental health among kids who had, who were suffering at the beginning. Um, I was less compelled when I heard you guys talk to the Dutch clinics, that thing where they switched from the male or female dysphoria scale to the other one um because in that case um and we don't need to get too deep into this but like if if a um female to male transitioner transitioned and they were doing well otherwise at living as a male a young man and you gave them a dysphoria scale saying would being does being female or would being female cause you distress i mean okay let's say it did still cause them distress to think about being female but they were happily living as a male i don't i don't see how that would give you much useful information about whether transition was a good idea i could be missing something there but Mm. that was more or less your critique right that they switched from a male to female dysphoria scale or vice versa Uh, well i think our critique was that was the main scale that showed uh, apparently substantial kind of improvement and that that particular scale was so it should have been a neutral scale. It should have been. It shouldn't have been boy, girl, girl, boy, because. Gotcha. Yeah, but because of course they would like questions like, "Would do you like being perceived as a girl?" And then, "Do you like being perceived as a boy?" Well, you know. Yeah, of course they like being. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean I agree with yeah. you. I just I yeah. if if we had better evidence, um, if those kids are otherwise flourishing, and it sounds like we can't quite say that just because a lot of them were doing fine beforehand, I wouldn't find that. Um, issue to be that pressing but um again i actually i have not dug as deeply into the those studies as you guys have well it's interesting just on that point i'll just add they could ostensibly be still quite gender dysphoric and get the switch scale and their responses could make it seem as though they're less dysphoric so it's just it doesn't really it in my view the the switching of the scales means you're not accurately capturing whether or not the dysphoria has shifted yeah so i think that's that's a tricky part sorry go ahead stella yeah i wanted to ask uh i've always wanted to ask you this jesse so here you are (laughs) um because you did such such pivotal articles like the, the the zucker article was such a big deal and then the atlantic article they were both really real lines in the sand as far as i could see and i do know you were attacked um, and I, I, I feel you make kind of light of it, but it seems to it seemed to, I, I think it was quite dark. Did you make a decision to stay away as much as you could from gender because it's just so dark and difficult or not? Oh, I mean, not it's sort of complicated. I mean, I the only place I could write about this stuff where I would want to is the spectator um, where I have like a monthly column. And I I devoted one of my first ones to just explaining how bad the media coverage has been of this. I could pitch to the New York times or the Washington post or the Atlantic, like anything on any subject except for this, it just wouldn't be worth it. Um, So that's, that's frustrating because I think I became, you know, I'm not an expert, like a clinician with 30 years of experience, but I think if like, if I had the same amount of time writing and thinking about this as I did with uh, climate change, I could publish climate change studies in the Atlantic. W- what makes this whole thing sort of complicated and hard to unravel is like, there's been this sort of direct subscriber revolution and I can do all this stuff for Substack and make, frankly, more money writing it for Substack than I would as like one-off freelance pieces for the Atlantic or the times. Oh, also all that being said, like I, the times commissioned me to review Helen Lewis's book. So I just, I can't really complain that um, I've been driven out of this and I can't claim that I've like intentionally avoided it because I still write about it. But, but all of which is a long winded way of saying some of the stuff I written on this subject is paywalled on my newsletter. But um, you know, the, the critique of the study we just talked about, I made sure was unlocked because I, I wanted everyone to read it and it, it did well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious, since you have been kind of looking at this issue for many years now, 
Um, I, I always say that the pace of change in this particular issue is very rapid and week to week things can feel different. And then sometimes two years in or three years in, you're like, well, things haven't changed so much. So I can't always gauge like if I'm correct on that. But what have you seen change in the last several years? You've started covering this around 2015. What's changed in, in a kind of a broader view? We'll first talk about in terms of the coverage in the media and whether that's improved. I know you mentioned you think it's getting a little better. So can you talk a little bit about the broad changes you've seen in journalism around this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've I've had other this sounds like I'm putting myself at the center of the journalism universe. I wouldn't normally do this. I do think the really insane over the top response to my piece, which generated like a Jezebel headline, what's Jesse singles fucking deal and stuff like that. I, 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 again, I'm not usually this kind of guy, but I do Mm. think that's sort of deterred other major outlets from writing about it. Because Mm -hmm. like, if you read the piece, I bend over backward to the point of like, the article often not being as readable as it would be otherwise to mention, you know, the evidence we do, some of the evidence we do have for transition, particularly among adults and to just say trans people obviously have a hard time in society and haven't been treated fairly by the medical establishment. I do think like the, because it was a high profile piece and the response was so rabid, frankly, that outlets were like, we're not, we're not going to mess around with this issue. And I think that mm. maybe contributed somewhat to like just not treating this like a serious scientific um controversy whether or not that theory is true i know it's true that um there's a subset of activist clinicians like foremost among them jack turban who've done a really good job from their point of view making sure they get interviewed and quoted and i i know when on the media or um science versus which is supposed to be just like a view from thirty thousand feet science debunking podcast when they cover this issue i know like with almost perfect accuracy and again i'm not usually someone who's good at predicting stuff i know what all the lines are going to be they're going to say that the detransition rate's very low they're going to say these treatments are safe and reversible you can just sort of recite the litany yeah Yeah. and and the times which has improved immensely they did an episode of this for the daily that i mentioned in my spectator article this was just last year where where they approvingly quoted someone saying you can be on puberty blockers for 10 years just like gobsmacking stuff where if anyone with any real knowledge of this had reviewed it it wouldn't have made it in um on the air so for a while things were really bad and i thought that i don't even want to use the term act i was going to say something like activists really control the conversation but you know there there are trans activists who themselves have qualms about the pace of youth transition. It's not all activists. It's it's the activists mm-hmm. with like the most vanguard views on this. And I really thought a lot of major news outlets were acting as stenographers for outlets who, um, for activists who, you know, in my view, don't always know what they're talking about. Uh, I think there was always going to be like a rubber meets the road moment on this because of the lack of evidence. And I think in part because of what happened in Europe, uh, Sweden and Finland and to a lesser extent, like the the Kira Bell ruling, uh, there was going to be some like things were going to get a little bit saner. And I think in part because Laura Edwards Leeper and Erica Anderson have gotten more and more outspoken and neither of them is um, against youth transition, which I think is a line major outlets wouldn't cross. They've been able to carve out roles as like, you know, maybe muscle out the Jack Turbans a little bit. Uh, and I think they're just much more responsible you know, thoughtful voices on this. Um, so anyway, I think things are improving. Uh, I think there was a really dark span there where like every every article I read on this in mainstream outlets was was really bad. I heard you say before um, that you felt something like 2010 was the nadir of, of, of bad psychology, bad research. And when I look at a lot of the gender research back from then in 2010, 2011, 2012, there was an awful lot of very bad research. Have you have you got any theories around what why there was so much bad research out, out there? Well, in my book, I'm sort of more talking about social psychology and the replication crisis, which is like a very specific set of issues. I, I actually don't have as great a grasp on like the recent history of youth gender okay. medicine research, other than that there just hasn't been enough of it and it's been pretty low quality. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. 
Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. So can you, um, do you feel comfortable to speak a little bit about what has been going on in the, the U.S. government and some of the kind of initiatives the Biden administration is taking on? I know, again, this changes really rapidly, but could you help us kind of wrap our minds around what may be going on there? Yeah, I mean the the what's been going on is um and again, I don't I don't follow this day to day, but I know that um Republicans have really decided to make an issue of this at the state level and there've been many states attempting to ban youth gender transition. Um I'm 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 against that. I just don't trust legislators to make that decision. I think these are these are complicated decisions. Uh I'm really against the Texas version of it, which I think is like egregious because you're talking about removing basic first of all, making an end run around the state legislature and then removing kids from their parents' homes, which is uh, just I gobs back by that. Uh I think because these are genuinely bad laws that, in my view, go too far, there's been a counterreaction from the left. And I think the left had already, you know, backed itself into a fairly uh, evidence-challenged corner on this. And it's just, it's like a lot of stuff in American politics. Each side brings out the other side's worst qualities. So I think the Biden administration sees itself mostly as protecting trans kids from these laws and is not going to put out new and state nuanced statements about the state of the evidence at this juncture, um, which I guess politically I can understand because that's not what their constituents want to hear. Their constituents want to hear that they'll trans kids will be protected from the Republicans. As a journalist, I just, I just have a different approach. I'm not going to, I think it's my job to like be accurate about the science or as accurate as I can, whatever's going on. And whenever I've written about the subject, there's always some excuse for like, what now is not the time to talk about it. Now is not the time to talk about detransitioners or the gaps in the research. So I'm unmoved by the argument that we can't talk about this stuff mm. until like, what, until the Republican party disbands. I, I don't, <laughs> doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> I do think that can explain why the, um, you know, Biden administration is maybe not quite as nuanced on this as they should be. Yeah, there was a, a proposal or a guidance that suggests that if a provider does not provide affirming care for a kid, that it would be considered like discrimination, like a civil rights issue. Um, and I think that's just as egregious as putting a parent in jail for kind of going along with the provider or or kind of criminalizing providers. So I think to to say that it lacks nuance, uh, I mean, I think it's really misinformed. And I I strongly suspect, just in the same way that journalists have often covered this inaccurately, that political and government officials probably have no accurate understanding of what the real state of the science is. No, they're or, taking briefings from, like, yeah. from GLAAD, basically, and right. they're not going to get an accurate sense of the science, unfortunately. Yeah. And what is it go- what's going to happen? Do you think yourself that it's going to turn into very much like an, the abortion issue where it's, you know, some states it, in America, it's, it seems mm, to be mm-hmm. it's very, very, very polarized. So you'll have children trans so easy in one state and then completely in the opposite in the next state. Yeah, I don't I don't know about enough about the legal stuff to say for sure. That sounds like a reasonable prediction to me. I guess the question is whether there is the possibility of some sort of big Supreme Court ruling that ties the hands of the states. Um, if that did happen, it would not happen in liberals' favors, given the how the court you know, is made up right now. Yeah, I, I would guess there'd be just very different protocols from state to state. At the very least, you could see conservative states. Yeah. I mean, this was a point the New York Times made. Like in Texas, if they wanted to you know, they failed to pass a law banning the treatment outright. If they wanted to pass a law, just beefing up the requirements for transition, requiring more assessment, maybe putting an age cap on it, that would have been like much more reasonable and they could Mm -hmm. have done that. So I'm curious uh, if maybe some 
redder states will start to go in that direction. But yeah, I mean, one of the messed up things about America right now is just is just all these battles that get played out on the state level because nothing ever happens. We can't really pass laws anymore. So you, you have a situation where two people who live three miles apart might as well live in different countries if there's a uh, state border there. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as uh, from the journalist perspective, not so much a legal perspective. Um, do you see this as a kind of medical scandal? Like, like sometimes when I learn about the stuff happening with very young children who clearly have like severe mental mental health issues and then are being transitioned so quickly, and some of the clinics and the coercive practices that I hear about all the time, like sometimes I think, wow, this could really unfold as a scandal. And then other times I think this could just become the new norm for gender non-conforming kids who have mental health distress and maybe it won't break into a scandal. Like I'm, I'm sometimes unsure of how to gauge it, but as a journalist who's covered other kind of psychological fads, like, do you see this as being something that may be reported about as a serious scandal in the future? I know right now Republicans are saying it is, but it's so politically divided. But do you think that there will never be a consensus that this was actually a scandal? Um, I don't know if there'll be a consensus. I think there'll definitely be like incredibly um, bad individual cases and lawsuits, some of which are already like getting going, showing just like horribly negligent care provided to very ill children, like mentally ill kids. Um, And I think we'll get to a point where 75 or 80% of the population recognizes that there was some scandal there. Uh, There's probably a subset of true believers who will never accept that. But, you know, I I don't really know what the scope of it will be because like we have so little data on what's going on within gender clinics. There's just no attempt to really track it in the States. I, I will say that like, to me, it's a bad sign that Sweden, which I think has like what should be a much tighter and better run healthcare system than us has had a major scandal on that. And when I interviewed um, the lead presenter of a, a, this program about that, you guys might've talked about, I, I basically said, like, I, it's hard for me to understand how this could be a problem in Sweden and not at least as large a problem here. Um, so I, I think there's going to be some really awful cases that come out at the very least. That's a very good point because Sweden were, they were the first in 1972 to bring in any sort of gender kind of recognition and they were considered the gold standard of, of childhood pediatric transition. And they were way ahead of everybody else. And for them to kind of walk back is, you know, it's the canary in the coal mine, isn't it? It's, it's they've, they've said they've, they've always been ahead of us for this yeah. specific issue. So it says a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wonder really about um, the, the kind of the, the general sense of how much does this fall in with your reading of your your big thing is kind of bad science. That's what you that's what you that you what you study. How much of this is reflective of just there's bad science everywhere, or is it particularly egregious as it seems to me in the gender world? Or am I just not <laughs> educated about all no, the other subjects? No, this is something I've gone back and forth about. Is like mm. whether subjects that are particularly politicized there's like worse science i i I think there's like bad social science everywhere and bad medical science everywhere i think the difference here is like how quickly and enthusiastically it spreads like every time like the study i debunked well got written up in a lot of places and a lot of turbans research that is thoroughly broken gets written up you know including in the times so i think that's like the main difference is that it's you know the study I debunked. They they in the study they talk about the Texas policies. They see themselves not just as clinicians, but as activists generating fuel to push back against bad conservative policies. And you know if you're a doctor and you think um, lawmakers are making a mistake, you have every right to participate in political fights. But there's a maybe a tail wagging the dog thing here where where we push the studies on people and we promote them not because they're good, but because they tell us the story we want to hear. And I've seen that in a lot of different areas that are less politically fraught than this, but I I do think that's a factor. That's really, that's really interesting actually. And that feels really important. What are some other areas Mm. you've seen this? Give us some other examples. Cause I I can guess what I think you might say, but I'd love to hear more. Well, I mean like the, the implicit association test and implicit bias is one where it tells a really tidy story about how, um, 
how discrimination works in the U.S. Like there's all these people running around with with implicit bias in their head, and that's why we haven't achieved true equality. So once you have that narrative laid down, you know, studies that seem to reinforce that will spread pretty easily because they tell us what we want to know and what we already know to be true. Similarly, the the sort of oversimplified conception that there's all these kids with a different sex trapped inside them. Um, any study that appears to lend that credence, including the one that just came out about youth social transition, will spread it far and wide because it tells people something they want to hear. And it, that's especially potent if it tells them something they want to hear at a time when, like, the other side is trying to do something bad because, you know, these studies can be seen as um, ammunition to use against conservatives. So, yeah, the implicit association test, I think, is, is the best example because obviously race and racism are hotly politicized issues. Do you think it's something similar as happening with gender as is with race? Um, yeah, I mean, they're very different. I think in both cases, you have like a lot of essentialism and oversimplified accounts of how the world works and people really get backed into their corners and defend their positions. I, I think there's a lot of differences, too. Um, I'd have to think about that. It's like it's it's complicated. I listened to Blocked and Reported and you and Katie Herzog. It's a it's a great program. And you guys often Thank kind you. of poke fun at um, kind of magical thinking, like in a lot of realms, like not just about gender, but um, with the kind of the essentialism and this like oversimplified narrative of how the world works that really kind of fits in line with that. And I'm I'm wondering, like, do you think there's a particular reason why some of this magical thinking around gender I guess had like fertile soil right now in our, in our culture and like the Western mm. world, all, a lot of these English speaking countries have really adopted this. And I think the way American activism breeds online is also able to transmit out, but like just even if there's no way to back up your claim, like why yeah. do you think now? Why? And why is this gender religious belief system captured so many people? I mean, I think identity is really big right now. And, and that's what I mean by essentialism. Like <clears throat> you reduce people to their their race, their gender, their religion. There's obviously a lot to the idea that there's sort of um, oppression Olympics, for lack of a better term. Like in a lot of liberal spaces, the more oppressed you appear to be, the better you do uh, within, you know, in terms of social capital. There's also this like very weird trend of sort of worshiping young people and young people's weird, ill-formed politics. So... <laughs> I mean, the example that comes to mind is like Diane Aronsaft, um, you know, who I interviewed and met and and I, you know, I don't think she's a terrible person or anything. But when she says like the three or the four year olds are leading us now in their conception of gender, I don't know what that means unless it means something pretty out there um, or when. You know, adults looking at Tumblr teens and saying, yeah, they really get it. They understand things about gender. We don't. I, I think it's almost like it's condescending. It's almost like um, an age, age oriented version of like the noble savage trope where like the indigenous tribesmen understand science better yeah. than we do. Like, it's like, no 16 year olds on Tumblr do not under, you know, they, they, you young people might have certain ideas and certain it's useful that they're transgressive and they don't respect boundaries. I respect all those impulses, but it seems unlikely to me that 16 year olds have actually figured stuff out before they're, in many cases before their brains can even fully think about things abstractly. So I think um, it's weird, but I think adults get out a lot of um, a weird form of like capital out of sort of abdicating their responsibility to think things through and just saying like the kids get it. Let's listen to the kids, which I, I especially when irreversible, irreversible medical treatments are um, on the table just seems like a pretty terrible idea. It feels almost religious, like it's this post-religious era where, you know, the child is pure, the child speaks truth, and they have their, their, their kind of, their, their innocence on Innocence of babes, like yeah, all of yeah. that. It does yeah. feel, it does feel kind of religious. Yeah. Well, the other annoyingly religious part that I, I, I mean, you guys probably have more well-formed thoughts on this than I do, but like telling, um, a 15 or 16 year old who's really going through some stuff that they're, and I'm not saying every clinician does this, but I do think the culture mm -hmm. is telling them this, that there's a, a real platonic pure them deep down there somewhere. And when they find that they'll be okay. And uh, you look at these heartbreaking postings of a kid being like, I'm not sure if I'm a boy or a girl or a demi boy or a demi girl. And it, it just doesn't seem like anyone like, um, you know, the point of a good therapist is to 
I think sometimes challenge the patient and, and knock them out, not knock them out, but nudge mm-hmm. them out of thought patterns that <laughs> are unhelpful. And if mm-hmm. a kid is agonizing over whether they're a demi boy or a demi girl, and they haven't really thought through gender and they don't even understand the idea that they're being pressured to feel certain ways about like wanting to kiss a girl versus a boy. I, I just think that the adults are sort of, um, asleep at the switch here to not maybe push back on some of this. Yeah, that whole self, true self, my true self, my true self, where is it? Who am I and all this? It's Yeah, uh, there's no true self. <laughs> well, I certainly don't Or it's don't a very one. dynamic, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, and again, very Christian, very close to my soul. Like, it might yeah. as well be my 87-year-old mother, Irish Catholic <laughs> speaking about her soul. The way it's spoken about is, it's very, very, feels to me very, very like the Christian soul. I yeah. kind of I, I what what I would love is that and I don't think I'm not sure whether I'd love if we could, but I don't think we will be able to that you 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 and I, for example, won't quite agree on let's say I, I don't really agree with medical transition of children. I think that we should leave space until they grow up and you you do in certain case, cases. And wouldn't it be lovely that if we lived in a world where you and I could argue this out in a, in a kind of a normal and free way? And because we're both very centre in it, we're both kind of very much in the rational centre here. But the little nuances, which is where the best progress gets made, it doesn't feel there's any space for that. And it feels to me now, I don't know, but it feels to me that it's come from a very, um, the red and blue states in America and it's come over the Atlantic to where everything, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe this is just all social media and I'm blaming and I'm completely xenophobic here, but it feels like it's it's become so polarised, you have to be far left, far right, they kill each other and there's war and myself and yourself can't argue the nuances, which would be a very interesting conversation. Well, I do, I do want to ask you guys about that because that's a question I've always had. But I, I, I think huge numbers of Democratic voters have qualms about this. I hear from them all the time. Yes. They just won't yes. say so publicly. Yes. It's like a pluralistic ignorance thing, I, I believe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think so. I mean, I, I don't know about your experience, but Lisa Sellen Davis is writing about this kind of stuff, too. And she's really kind of had her own process of figuring out where she stands on this and she articulates it so well because I have always been a very kind of liberal and progressive person and I still think of myself that way insofar as I think that means I'm open-minded to questioning how things are like I think that questioning spirit is like part of that liberal ethos I guess Um, and she often talks about feeling uh, really confused when the party that you Uh, really associate with no longer makes any sense to you and feeling kind of homeless in that way. So I think you're right. I I think the average person, when they are explained what's going on with childhood gender dysphoria, are quite appalled at the early interventions. And like whenever I've, you know, spoken to people who are not in the psychological world, they're not journalists, they don't cover gender, they're, they're kind of shocked. And I think a lot of people don't realize what is happening. And um, I would guess that you're right, that a large majority of liberal people would probably be in the same boat that we all are, despite our little nuanced differences. And I guess I don't understand, aside from pluralistic ignorance, I can't think of why it may be that other people are just um, willing to kind of turn turn away and say, well, that's a mess. I don't want to deal with that because it's kids. You know, you think, yeah. well, that's, that's something everyone can rally around. These are just like little children and they're quite distressed and their, their bodies are being changed. And they so need I thought if anything, the childhood transition issue would create a lot more kind of dissonance that people would have to face. But for some reason, it doesn't seem to be as rocking the boat as I thought it would. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do think things are improving. Just just look at like the Times and the Post and a few other outlets. But um, I mean, so but what you guys might have covered this on a on a prior podcast. I'm sure you have, in fact. But so feel free to brush me off. But like, what's your answer to the question of of what we should do about kids who are you know deeply dysphoric and puberty is approaching and they felt that way for a while and they've gone through therapy and and nothing changes that this horrible feeling. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very interesting. I suppose I, I think that there's a lot of things that we have to experience in childhood. And in a way, that's the 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 deal of life, that when you when you're born, you live your effectively your parents life until you reach adulthood and then you can live your own. And while you're living your your parents life as such, you know, in their house to their values with their name, 
You know what I mean? That the name they've given you, that that's your job, that there is no other option as such, unless there's some terrible abuse happening. And obviously it's a very different story. But if it, if it's a loving family, I think I think there should be I think there should be rights of the parent. I think there should be some sort of authority of the parent. And I think driving a bus through that. Now, I know that's not the question you asked, but I I found myself answering this one. I think that needs to be brought into the equation. But the question you ask, I suppose I do think that for some people, we've never figured out why do some people have one condition and it sticks for life. And some people have as deep and as heavy the condition and it doesn't stick. We've never figured out that for any condition. And so for myself, because I had such deep and dark gender distress for so long, I, I, I'm i obviously completely shaped by that experience that I think, well, then anybody could move out. If I can move beyond it, if I had what I had and I moved beyond it, well, then I'd leave space for anybody. Now, that's very solipsistic and I'm sure other people would say, They'd bring other colour to it, but you can only bring what you can. You've only you can only bring yourself to the party, really. Yeah, and I think Jesse, your question is interesting because you're talking about um, the the awareness that puberty is coming, right? And so I think, well, first of all, we we can't, we don't exist in a vacuum. So I'm always very conscious of the fact that all of the desistance research we have, where depending on how you analyze it, between sixty and ninety something percent of kids with dysphoria desist, right? Um, Those studies were looking at kids who lived in a world that was pretty neutral about this issue. Like they were not going to LGBTQ clubs at school and talking about their trans identity all day and reading about it on Tumblr or TikTok. So I have no idea if desistance can look the same today as it did, let's say, in like the 80s or 90s. I'm aware that we can't necessarily make that comparison. But let's say we just kind of looked at the research we did have from back then. It is puberty itself, which often helps resolve the dysphoria. Which is is what happened to me. Right, which is what happened with Stella. And Stella, you're even more of an outlier insofar as your orientation. You're a straight woman, you're married, you have kids. But most people who have gender dysphoria and outgrow it in their teenage years are gay and they're pretty gender nonconforming. So if the fear of puberty is something that we start to to medicalize away, then we're also like preemptively perhaps preventing gay people from having their process in lots of cases or people like Stella. So I think for me, it's it's the uncertainty of what might have been of that person that makes me feel really hesitant about saying that transition's a good plan. Even though I also am aware, like, maybe some kids transition before puberty and they're, they are fine, ultimately. Like, that's yeah. also possible, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, if, if my understanding is that Dutch would sort of let them experience the first bit of puberty and see what effect that had on their symptoms and how they were doing. So a system like that, you know, it's tricky. It it does get much more difficult when you're having puberty blockers earlier and earlier and, and mm-hmm. no age restrictions. I, I think my sense is just like there are some people who will suffer immensely if not for this treatment. And it really annoys me that it's taken treated so flippantly. Like, oh yeah, just go on blockers, just go on hormones when mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot we don't know. But I think at the end of the day, I just um I think there's some people where the the benefits outweigh the costs. If if there's a very careful uh, assessment approach, which I think often in the States there just isn't. And, and not only is there not, there's explicit pressure for there to be less assessment and less mental health support. It's such a sledgehammer to crack a nut, though, like stopping puberty, because we don't actually know what stopping puberty does cognitively, emotionally. Yeah. We, we we have no idea, really, what the, the blocking. But we do know it blocks sexual development and we do know sexual so X is, is enjoyable. So I fear that we're we're getting in the way of the actual what could be the very the the process. I know my darkest days. I know I'm going back to myself here, but uh, my darkest days was in puberty. But having gone through puberty, I definitely emerged as you know more comfortable with being a woman. You, you, you know what I mean. So it was yeah. the the hard bit was in puberty. So had there been an opportunity to stop it. It's just such a, it's almost the biggest mind bender in my life. Like stop puberty, stop, stop, 
Yeah. Develop. It's it's a big it's, it's a big decision huge. for sure. It's yeah. so huge. I don't know of any equivalent in the human stages that we can do like stop imagine stop adulthood on stage. Yeah. You know, it's so big it, like. And it also just raises the challenges we have around things like what is a psychological assessment? How how accurate is it? Is it predictive? I mean, are we able to use uh, some battery of questions to truly tell the future? You know, of course, we can't. So it just becomes a, you know, a challenging place when we're trying to make those kinds of predictions in the face of a kid's extreme distress. The parents are stressed out. Everyone's afraid. It, it becomes really tricky. So, um, you know, I'm not somebody who ever makes really um, polarize, you know, statements. I tend to think that truth always lies somewhere in the middle. That's like one of my favorite phrases. But given that we can't predict the future, I feel super hesitant about relying on an assessment to try and predict what's going to happen. But I I understand why it, it may seem reasonable, especially in hindsight. So much of gender medicine is about trying to guess what would have been helpful. You know what I mean? Like talking with adults who are successful in their transitions and saying, gosh, I wish I had transitioned earlier. But it's, it's well, I might be wrong, but it's predicated on two things. One, that the puberty is very difficult. So that's one. And the second is, and the cosmetic outcomes are better. And the second Mm -hmm. one, really, we can shift on. You know what I mean? Because that's, that's very much to do with um, our cultural norms and our our version of what it is to be a man or to be a woman or to be a trans woman or to be a trans man. So, I I do think the second one doesn't hold half as much weight as and the, the first one. And then the first one makes me think, well, there's lots of ways to alleviate pain. There isn't just one way, and blocking puberty isn't. But I don't want to feel like I'm <laughs> where we've got you here <laughs> to, to to lash into no, it's, a, it's a healthy disagreement. So <laughs> I think I'd love to see more of it in life. There's something you said earlier that I want to go back to, and I'm conscious of the time running on. You know, there's a kind of a, a substack revolution. There's kind of a revolution among journalism, and you're a very good example of it. And where do you think that's going? And I'm so excited by it because it feels like almost the early days of the internet where you could just, it's like indie, you know, it's like indie music in the 80s. I mean, I I, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm, you know, a lot of us have found, I don't know how sustainable it is. I'm worried that everyone's behind a paywall, that we're going to become more and more balkanized. It it has absolutely changed my life because the podcast and my newsletter are both on Substack and I'm just making a better living than I could otherwise. Um, this kind of subscription-based thing doesn't really support like the kinds of people who do like hardcore reporting, uh, who like really time yeah time heavy investigative reporting where you really need editing, Ukraine, you need resources, yeah. you need to travel. Yeah. Uh, for someone like me who like sits behind a computer and expresses opinions or looks at scientific paper, it works really well. There's probably going to some, be some point at which the market gets saturated because five dollars a month Mm -hmm. to read me isn't on paper a great deal given that that's like a third of a netflix subscription where you get this unlimited content of stuff so there's just a lot we don't know about whether this is sort of a bubble that's going to pop or how sustainable it is in the long run i don't like having to put my stuff behind a paywall because like i'd rather have it be out of the open but um it's absolutely a game changer in that a lot of stuff that um mainstream outlets refuse to print or are very hesitant to print despite it being completely moderate opinions mm-hmm. you know you now have a place to put it yeah don't sell yourself short i think you're you're pretty good almost as good as netflix i think there's going to be <laughs> there's going to be really interesting <laughs> business analysis here because i don't know how many substacks i'm signed up to too many probably yeah me too and i've also i have never I know I used to read, you know, the Irish papers back in the day, 20 years ago, and a couple of English papers every so often on a Saturday or a Sunday just to keep myself lively. You know, now I'm yeah. like Washington Post, New York Times. I'm reading, I'm reading newspapers from all over the world now because yeah. so that's really interesting. So while we're echo chambering, we're also expanding. I just think I think there's so many massive kind of opportunities but I bet you anyway to go back to my point I bet you there's a limit to the average person's substack it'll be 15 yeah. or something that most people will just say that's enough substacks 
And like yeah. you said, there's going to be a saturation. And I'd say we're kind of all getting close to it. Yeah, I mean, I know like a lot of us have graphs that sort of the shape of them suggests that we've already experienced our best and biggest growth. And it says, you know, I, I'm hoping I can steadily keep growing indefinitely. But, um, you know, there, there, there appears to be saturation coming, I think. Well, for anyone listening, check out Jesse's Substack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're Please we're sir. really grateful to have had you on. It feels like I've kind of been I know you because I've been following your work for so long. So it was just really nice to be able to to chat with you and have this conversation. Any Thank you anywhere for else? Uh, you're welcome. Anywhere else you'd like to plug for listeners? Uh, yeah, Blocked and Reported is a oh, podcast. Yeah. I, I have a show on, uh, thank you, on Call-In, which is like, um, I take listeners' calls. It's like a radio call-in show. So uh, you can find me, callin.com. I mean, I think that's it. Let me double check. Yeah, callin.com. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, occasionally write for other outlets too. But as we've said, um, I don't have to anymore, which is great. And <laughs> I can write for myself. Have you um, any ideas for a new book? Not yet. Uh, I'd like to write another one, but I haven't quite figured that out yet. Okay. We need Thank one on gender. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks a million, Jesse. That was brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender: A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron. You'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 